I can't believe we're officially in the year 2023. Um, like it blows my mind that 2022 for me went by so fast. I know for some people it was a rough year, but um, it was such a fast, such a great year for me. As the new year kicks off, we'll be walking through. We'll be walking through a short uh, three-week series on some of the same content with the same theme that we had from camp. So I guess the bad news for you is that the first three weeks of 2023, you get to listen to me preach. But the good news is it only gets better from here. So start low, end high. That's the goal. But um, all jokes aside, I do believe that the truth that we're going to look at over the next three weeks will give us great perspective as we enter the new year. And as you saw from the video, as you've seen from our sweatshirts, our theme for camp this year was the good life. And we pulled this theme idea from John 10, 10, where we spent a lot of our time together, where Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If I can be honest, we chose to go with good life instead of abundant life because it was catchier and it looks better on the sweatshirts. But the words mean pretty much the same thing. So uh, so we figured that it was okay. But when we hear statements, oftentimes as Christians, when we hear statements like abundant life or good life, we oftentimes can get really tense because for some reason we don't like to use terms like good and abundant to describe life with Jesus. A lot of this, I think, is for me, is because we're afraid of proclaiming some sort of prosperity gospel and we don't want people to come to Jesus simply because they think their life will be better. This is a very valid concern, but the problem with omitting these terms completely is that these are the exact terms Jesus used to describe the life that he gives. I think the problem we've encountered is a misunderstanding of what it means for life to be good and for life to be abundant. Culture has conditioned us to think of goodness and abundance differently than we should. For example, if I were to ask you to think about the good life to you, like if you were to close your eyes and think, this is what the good life would look like. What would you think about? Maybe um, you think about having your toes in the sand and a martini in your hand, sipping it as you just sit somewhere nice and cozy. That's at least what Justin said he thought about earlier this week. <laughs> but maybe you think about just relaxing on the beach, listening to the sound of the waves. Maybe you think about never having to work again and relaxing with luxury on every side for the rest of your life. Maybe you think about having so much money that you can buy anything and everything you want at the drop of a hat. Maybe you think about having a sex crazed life, pursuing any partner that you desire with no repercussions. Regardless of what you think, we all have a tendency to associate the good life with things that Jesus never means when he describes the good life himself. And this is something that we've actually seen throughout all of history. Since the fall in the garden, man and God have had completely opposing views of what the good life was. Since, uh, since this fall, all over the Old Testament, we've seen statements like, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. God's idea of goodness is vastly different from man's idea of goodness. So knowing this reality illuminates what Romans 12, 2 says. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. My prayer for us as we walk through this short series is that Christ will do a renewing work by transforming our minds to see what is truly good. That we can enjoy all the promises that he gives of the abundant life that we have in him. With that being said, we're going to be digging into John chapter 4. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn there. But while you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. Um, I want you to take a guess. How many companies do you think are in the world? Don't say it out loud, uh, but lean over to someone next to you if you want and take a guess at how many companies you think exist in the world today. Believe it or not, there are an estimated 213 million companies throughout the whole world. That means there is roughly one business for every 37 humans that are on earth today. And most of these businesses have something called a slogan. In case you don't know, a slogan is a short, catchy phrase used to make a company or product more memorable. So slogans are a big part of most companies' identities. I want to play a game to see just how good these slogans are really quickly before we read scripture. So if you went to camp or went on the retreat, don't ruin it for everyone else. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a slogan and I want you guys, if you know it, to shout back to me what company this slogan is from. Does that make sense? Okay, don't be shy. All right. First one. This is going to be super easy. I'm loving it. McDonald's. What about this one? Have it your way. Burger King. Eat more chicken. Chick-fil-A. This one I didn't know. The students at, at, on the retreat knew. All about the South. Jacks. I didn't know that, but I love, I love that. Um, this one's easy. Taste the rainbow. Just do it. This one, no one got at camp. Don't ruin this. The only way is through. <laughs> that, yeah, that's true, but it's actually Under Armour. That's Under Armour slogan, so they haven't done a great job with that. I had no idea. Um, save money, live better. And one of my favorites, the snack that smiles back. Goldfish. I love that slogan. But um, So slogans are a big deal for companies. In my opinion, one of the best slogans of all time belongs to Snickers. They have a couple. Um, the biggest one that they've had is you're not you when you're hungry with some funny commercials tagged along with it. That's not the one I'm talking about. The one I'm talking about is one word, and they've started putting it on their wrappers a lot of the times if you'll see them in gas stations, but the word is satisfies. Somehow, the company behind Snickers has managed to make us associate their candy bar with the word satisfies. And this has got to be, in my opinion, one of the most incredible things that a company has ever done from a marketing standpoint. And you may think, Tucker, that's a pretty, like, that's a pretty big claim to say that. Why, why is this such a big deal to you? But I would respond to your question with a question. What is the one thing that every individual on earth is seeking? Some may say happiness. Some may say love. Some may say money. But I would say at the deepest root, every person on earth is seeking satisfaction. People want to be happy because that happiness will satisfy them. People want to find love because they believe in it. They will be satisfied. People want to make money, have lots of money and lots of things because they think all those things are going to bring them joy and satisfaction. Even think about all that you did in the year 2022. 
Why did you do any of those things? I'd say it was because you were either forced to or you had to or because those things brought you satisfaction. Think about any resolutions you might have made for this year. You've made them because you were unsatisfied with that portion or area of your life and to complete them would bring you satisfaction. Think about the good life you just thought about a few moments ago. Whatever you imagined in your mind, you imagined it because you believe that will bring you satisfaction. So for Snickers to be able to trademark and use the word satisfies as a slogan is remarkable. Because in this one word association, they are appealing to what every human wants at their core. Satisfaction. Now, of course, no one would actually believe that any long term satisfaction can come from eating a Snickers bar. But this ingenious scheme draws people in to enjoy the product that this company seeks to promote. Now, if I can make it spiritual, this is precisely what Satan does to lure us away from Jesus. He tries to convince us of a satisfaction that can be found in things other than Christ. He tries to convince us satisfaction can be found in stuff like friends, popularity, sex, relationships, games, social media, money, leisure and relaxation. And it's not that these things aren't things God intends for us to enjoy. They definitely are. But Satan pulls us away from the giver of the gift to deceive us into thinking that it's the gifts that are meant to satisfy. And that's just not true. These gifts are meant to draw us in to enjoy the only one who truly does satisfy. For example, enjoying sex with your spouse is a good gift that points to the covenant commitment between Christ and his church. Having sex outside of marriage is empty and damning. Having friends is a great gift that brings great joy as the church is united together. But idolizing people in such a way that you need confirmation from others to be satisfied is burden bringing and soul crushing. Enjoying a relaxing vacation is helpful and brings rest to our souls. But prioritizing relaxation over your family, the church and God's mission makes you a lazy slob that will never accomplish anything. Working to earn money is a necessity for life. And we can use our money in lots of ways to glorify God and enjoy what he's given us. But when we begin pursuing money at all costs, we forsake everything else in order to gratify our greed and selfishness. I could go on and on and on, but the point I'm trying to make is that our flesh and Satan himself are pulling us in to believe that all of these things can satisfy us. And we would say that just isn't true. In John 4, we see an unlikely encounter between Jesus and a woman from Samaria. And in this encounter, our whole perception of satisfaction will be put to the test. So let's read John 4 together. So if you would, please stand. We'll start in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 29, and then we're going to jump to verse 39 and read a couple of verses there. Starting in verse 1, here's what John says. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So they came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. And saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, And he just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Skip to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the ability to read it, understand it, know it. I pray that as we walk through it now, you would be in it, make yourself known to us from it, and fill me with your spirit that we could see clearly your words. We love you. We pray for your glory in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So in my opinion, this is probably my favorite encounter in all of Jesus's life on earth. It starts like we read as Jesus and his disciples are leaving Judea to make a trip to Galilee. 
And then John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And this may not mean anything to you at first glance, but if you look at any map from this time, you can clearly see that Jesus did not have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. In fact, most Jews at this time would go around Samaria in order to avoid it because they did not like the Samaritans at all. So even Jesus's decision to travel through Samaria shows he was walking and living with intentionality and he had set up a divine appointment to meet this woman. Once they get into Samaria, Jesus, exhausted as he is from their journey, decides to plop down right at the well this woman would just so happen to come get water from. And this is where their encounter begins with a seemingly normal question, request from Jesus. Give me a drink. But in this moment, Jesus is breaking barriers. Jews didn't deal with Samaritans. So for Jesus to ask this Samaritan woman for water was a pretty big deal. From this point in the conversation, we see a pretty intense back and forth where Jesus makes some radical statements and then the woman asks some pretty revealing questions. But the pinnacle point of this encounter happens in verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the huge statement from Jesus. And here's the main point. Jesus is saying true satisfaction is only found in him. True satisfaction is only found in Jesus. Jesus says the water from this well and from every other well will leave you wanting more and more and more. But the water I give will endlessly satisfy you. If you haven't caught it already, let me just say Jesus is not talking about water. At least he's not talking about physical water as we know it. He's talking about the quenching of the soul. And he says in this moment that only he can truly quench the soul completely and eternally. And as many of us would say, we fully affirm these words. We struggle so much to actually believe the words of Jesus here. I'd actually say that every time we choose to sin, we are choosing to believe that what Jesus says here is a lie. When we sin, we say in our hearts, Jesus, you aren't enough to satisfy me. This other thing over here is going to satisfy my heart in a way that you can't. Opening our eyes to this really helps us see how important these words of Jesus are for us to hear and savor. Now, And for the rest of our lives. So the point of Jesus's conversation with this woman is to show that only he can truly satisfy. This is the first truth we have to understand in order to properly see what makes the good life so good. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time together this morning is treat this encounter like a case study. We see Jesus's claim that he alone can satisfy. But the question we have to ask is how? Because this is a big, bold claim from Jesus. But if it can't be proven as true, then it's meaningless. So in this text, we see at least four pieces of evidence from their conversation that are either going to prove or disprove that Jesus alone satisfies. And I want to encourage you to do something that most preachers would never encourage you to do. But as we dive into these four pieces of evidence, I want to encourage you to be skeptical. 
Or in other words, don't enter this moment with a preconceived idea that these things are true or not true. I believe we'll be most edified and transformed by our time together if we actually think about and actually ponder what Jesus is saying here. We need to really deeply, authentically put the words of Jesus to the test, not just say that we are. So let's put our detective glasses on and let's investigate these pieces of evidence to determine whether we can truly believe that Jesus alone satisfies We'll start at the beginning of this interaction with the first piece of evidence, which is that Jesus gives living water. Right off the bat, Jesus gives us a statement that is extremely cryptic. So we have to do a little bit of digging. What does this mean? Is he giving water that's going to walk around with us like Big Hero 6 or, or some uh, you know, mystical figure? Like, what's the deal? What's he saying? To understand what he means, we have to look at his words elsewhere in John 7. Verse 37, he says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Jesus says the living water is the spirit. So what Jesus is saying here is that one reason he alone can satisfy is that he alone gives us the spirit. He claims that the spirit gives a deep, heart fulfilling, soul quenching satisfaction that nothing else can give. But again, we have to ask, how is this so? What exactly is it that the Holy Spirit, this living water is doing to make me satisfied? First, We know that the living water brings to life what's dead in me. Romans 8, 11 says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This moment isn't just talking about once we die, we will live again. Paul is saying that this spirit gives life to our mortal bodies right now. What was once dead, God has made to live right now. The spirit changes my life on earth right now to be better. We don't often think in these terms, but it's true. The spirit gives us inexpressible joy. The spirit gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. The Spirit gives us daily communion with God. The Spirit has freed us from the burden of the law. The Spirit gives us lenses to see everything as it pertains to God. The Spirit makes us happy. The Spirit makes life enjoyable. And this is true because the Spirit is the power of God in us that is drawing us to enjoy Him. And it's doing this on a daily basis. In every circumstance of life. So if you aren't happy and if you don't enjoy life, then you are not running to Jesus to give you living water. You aren't enjoying life that's given by the spirit. Note here in this moment that I'm saying life is going to be easy. It will not. But regardless of what life brings, we are promised through the spirit that we will have peace and hope and joy that surpasses all understanding. There's a perfect example of this right here in an individual in our church. 
through 2022, their life was insanely bad. Like if you just look at the facts on a sheet of paper, their life was bad. But this individual is one of the most joyful, happy, loving people I know in spite of their terrible circumstances. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has given life to their mortal bodies. The living water has brought them to life. Second, the living water purifies what is wrong in me. So if the living water brings to life what's dead, it also purifies what's wrong. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Each of us have grown up in a different way and we've learned lots of different things in life. And the simple reality of it is that we have to humbly recognize is that a lot of what we've been conditioned to think and believe is just simply wrong. So when we are given this living water, the spirit teaches us. The living water reveals to us the glory of the truth. And as it does that, it's pushing out the old, bad, no good water that's already in us. The living water is so good because it purifies us from the inside out. So any growth that we have, any knowledge that we gain, any truth that we find can be credited to the spirit of God. The living water that purifies us. And third, the living water bears good fruit from me. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is a list that Paul gives of the fruits of the Spirit. And any good gardener will tell you that in order to get good growth from your crops, you have to properly water the plants. You have to give them good water. You can't just water a plant with mud and expect anything good to come from it. In the same way, we cannot bear any good fruit whatsoever if we aren't being given proper water. And not just any water, but the living water. When we run to Jesus, he gives us this living water, which is the spirit and the living water bears good fruit in and from us. Listen to these attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't think there's a better description of uh, that we should strive for on earth of who we are. And if you want to be someone who's marked by these good attributes, then you must run to Jesus to give you living water because only he bears good fruit from us. So in summary, I'm brought to life. I'm internally purified. And as a result, I bear fruit all because of the living water running through me. And again, let's not forget this living water was poured out to me because I came to Jesus and daily. I have an endless abundance of living water to drink from that has been given to me from Jesus. I don't know about you, but to me, being made alive, purified and bearing fruit sounds like a really good life. And it sounds like it would bring great rest and great satisfaction. So looking at this first piece of evidence, I think it's safe to agree that what we've investigated checks out. Do you agree? Okay, that didn't seem too confident. We'll keep going anyways. Um, the next piece of evidence we'll look at 
is that Jesus needs no help. Number two, Jesus needs no help. In verse 11, this woman says, ask a question. She says, sir, you have nothing to drink, uh, to, to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? When the woman asks this question, she assumes something about Jesus that we know just simply isn't true. We've all heard the saying, uh, it's cliche, but it's true. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This cliche statement is exactly what this woman's question addresses. And though it may not seem like it at first, this woman's question actually proves this statement to be true. I just imagine she hears Jesus talking about this crazy, awesome water that he's going to give her. Then she looks at Jesus, looks all around, looks on the floor, sees that he has nothing with him. So she asks, how in the world do you expect to get water without a bucket or something? Don't you need something to assist you? And the answer is no. Jesus needs nothing to give living water apart from himself. This is really good news, but why am I presenting it to you as evidence that Jesus is satisfying? Well, think for a moment about a well. Wells are deep and they're kitted out typically with a rope and bucket and or maybe bring the bucket to fill it up and then take it back home. But how useful is it to have a well that is 20 foot deep, but have no bucket and no rope? I'd argue that it's not useful at all. Like it's pretty pointless. There's no benefit from having a well that you're unable to get water from. Now consider Jesus. He's the well that needs no external tools to receive water from. When we run to Jesus to get living water, we have no need to bring anything with us. There's no metaphorical bucket. There's no metaphorical rope. No good work. No task completed. No position of authority. The good news in this question is that Jesus doesn't expect us to approach him with anything of our own to receive this water. He actually wants us to come to him empty handed. And he has promised that he will do all the work necessary to give us soul quenching satisfaction. When we come to Jesus, we are nothing but recipients. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer. We come to him needy and he meets every need we have and gives us complete satisfaction. Again, I think it's safe to say this piece of evidence affirms that Jesus alone satisfies in a beautiful way. So looking, moving on to the third piece of evidence we see in this text. It's the truth that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Now, admittedly, this seems pretty vague, but we're going to break it down. Much like the last piece of evidence, this piece is shown to us in the Samaritan woman's next question. In verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Before we dig into what she's asking here, to understand what she's asking, we need a little bit of understanding about who she's talking about. Jacob was the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham, and he's one of the most important characters in all of the Old Testament. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars. And through Jacob, we begin to see this promise unfold. 
Jacob had 12 sons. And once he had these boys, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And through Jacob and his sons, uh, God brought his holy nation into being. So to say Jacob was important would be an understatement. He was one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle that God was putting together to create his people and to bring about a savior. The woman at Samaria knew just how important Jacob was, and she knew it was a really big deal that Jacob had built the well on the ground where she was standing. But what she didn't know was just how great this Jesus was. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. But Jesus says later in the book of John that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus wasn't simply a descendant of Abraham and Jacob. He was the God who created Abraham and Jacob. Jacob was the head of the physical nation of Israel. But Jesus is the head of all of God's people, past, present and future. Jacob was a single piece of the story that's all about Jesus. So to answer this woman's question, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Yes, he most certainly is. Not only is Jesus greater than Jacob, though, Jesus is greater than anything that has ever touched the earth. So if any of us want to approach Jesus with a question, are you greater than blank? The answer will always be without a shadow of a doubt. Yes, no one and nothing can compare to him. He alone is all powerful. He alone is good. He alone is worthy. He alone is gracious and kind. He alone is glorious. He alone is self-sufficient. And he alone can satisfy. He has no deficiency. Jesus is greater. The final piece of evidence we'll investigate comes at the end of their interaction. And it's the beautiful truth that Jesus is Messiah. After a little bit more back and forth between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus does a little teaching on what true worship should look like. And then the Samaritan woman mentions that she knows the Messiah is coming. And at that time, all that Jesus is saying is going to come true. And then Jesus says the words that finally open her eyes. I who speak to you am he. The statement from Jesus carried more weight than anything else he said in the whole conversation. And we use the terms Messiah and Christ pretty commonly and loosely, but these are big deals. What do they actually mean? The short answer that we have that we know is anointed one. In the Old Testament, men who took roles of leadership were anointed with oil. They were set apart to carry out the work they've been called to do. With Christ, he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. When he was baptized, God declared Jesus as his anointed son. But what is the work that Jesus came to carry out? I believe Hebrews 9.26 summarizes it pretty well. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The work Jesus came to carry out was the salvation of the world. And this several times divorced, adulterous Samaritan woman was hated by God's people but was loved by God himself. And you, an incomprehensibly sinful individual 
who has earned God's hatred instead has been shown God's love. First John 4.10 says, written by the same guy who recorded this story, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We have no right to stand before God. We are entirely deserving of complete wrath and condemnation for our sin. But in radical, mind-blowing, endless love, God sent Jesus to be our Messiah. The one who would live a perfect life, completely obeying and submitting to God at all times. But in spite of that perfect life, this Messiah would have the entire wrath of God placed on himself. Though he was guilty of no sin, he endured the punishment for all sin. Why? So that he could cover us with his blood and that we could be declared innocent. And though Jesus once lay in the grave, he is now risen and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for all who trust in him. Jesus is Messiah. He came as a sufficient sacrifice to save sinners. And he is coming back to establish and reign in God's kingdom forever. This is the ultimate reason that Jesus is so satisfying, because he is the Messiah. Only he can give life to our dead corpses. Only he can give life to our dead bodies. Only he can take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Only he can make us holy as he is holy. Only he can fulfill the deep longings of our souls. Jesus is the only Messiah who can fully and completely satisfy you now and as he reigns as king forever. This morning, each of us has investigated the evidence given that Jesus alone satisfies. And from scripture itself, I pray we can see clearly why Jesus makes such a bold claim. The good life is ultimately good because only in Jesus will we ever be fully satisfied. The evidence is there. The truth is clear to see. But in light of this truth, what should our response be? Like, what should we do? And to answer that question, I'd encourage all of us to look at the way this woman responds to the same truth we've seen today. Look at verses 28 and 29. John tells us that the woman left her water jar and went and told everyone about Jesus. So here's what we learn from this woman. Because of the supreme satisfaction of Jesus, we can, number one, Leave behind the water jar. Remember, Jesus and this woman met at the well. The woman walked out of her house with water jar in hand, and her sole goal was to fetch water and take it back home. When this woman encountered Jesus, all her focus was on getting water in this jar and leaving. But when she truly saw who Jesus was, she went from questioning him to being quenched by him. And she left her water jar behind. All care that she had for it was completely gone because she was completely consumed with Jesus. Think about this. The very reason she left her house is the very thing she left behind once she met Christ. 
She no longer needed water in her jar because she met the one who gives living water. And many of us this morning are in the same shoes as this woman was. So my question to you is, what is it that you cling to and pursue like this woman was pursuing water? What is it in your life that you're seeking to find satisfaction in? Regardless of what it is, there is one thing I know to be true. It will never satisfy you. It will never satisfy you. It doesn't matter if it's a career pursuit. It doesn't matter if it's a pleasurable pursuit. It doesn't matter if it's a familial pursuit or a relational pursuit or any other pursuit in the world. It will never satisfy you. My prayer in this moment is that you'll look to Jesus, realizing that he is your Messiah. And he is the only one who can satisfy your soul. Whatever it is in your life that you're seeking satisfaction in right now, in this moment, leave it behind. Lay it aside. Realize, like this woman, that Jesus is all that you need. And he's the only one who can satisfy you. And leave behind the water jar. Number two, we learn from this woman to go tell others about this Jesus. Not only does this woman leave the water jar behind, she leaves it in order to go tell others about the Messiah who has finally come. And listen to the way she evangelizes. It's so Christ-centered. Come see a man who showed me all that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? She says this because it's on the backdrop of her sin that the grace of Jesus is made much of. So when we go as people who are trying to make much of Jesus to others, we make much of his grace by placing it on the backdrop of our sin and insufficiency. But it doesn't stop right there. Look at verse 42. After this woman is gone, the people of Samaria want to meet Jesus and and spend time with him. Then they say to the woman, it's no longer because of you that we believe. We've seen him ourselves and we know that he's the savior. So as Christians, as people who have tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus, our goal should be to use our words and evangelism to draw people in, not to know about me or to know my my story, know who I am, but to see and know him. Our lives should be marked by us shouting, I lived and pursued so many things other than Jesus. And I lived isolated in sin for a long time, but Jesus pursued me and saved my soul. And now I rest assured knowing that he has saved me and that he is the only one who will ever satisfy me. And I know he can save and satisfy you too. As we look to Jesus, it should be our natural response to leave everything behind and to run to others to tell them all about this marvelous Savior. But we will not lay down the water jar If we aren't running to Jesus to give us living water. We will not tell others about him. If we aren't rejoicing in him ourselves. So church at the turn of the new year. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The only one who can satisfy our souls. And as we look to him. Let's lay aside anything we may be looking to for satisfaction. And let's run to tell others just how good 
this life with Jesus is. He's the soul-saving, thirst-quenching, life-giving Messiah who satisfies us completely.